Hello, and welcome to today's Institute for Healthcare Improvement's Author in the Room conference call. My name is Amber, and I will be your conference operator for today's call. Right now, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session, and instructions on how to participate will follow at that time. As a reminder, this call is being recorded. If you should need operator assistance at any time, please press star then zero on your touchtone phone. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's call, Dr. Chuck Kylo. Dr. Kylo is CEO of Greenfield Health in Portland, Oregon, a fellow with the Institute for Healthcare Improvement and a practicing internist. Dr. Kylo, you may go ahead. Thank you, Amber. Greetings, everyone, and welcome once again to Author in the Room a monthly program sponsored by JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and IHI, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. My name, as Amber said, is Dr. Chuck Kylo, and I'm delighted to be your moder moderator for today's call. Um, as you know, Author in the Room calls are designed to translate new knowledge, what is published in a recent JAMA article, into actionable steps that can improve clinical practice and patient care. It's a monthly call occurring at this time on the third Wednesday of every month, and uh, we've been running for about a year and a half now. Uh, before we proceed, I'd just actually like to mention how some organizations are using the author in the room calls. As a practicing internist, uh, it's been my experience that almost every call we have done has been applicable to my work. And at the same time, folks that I work with in my local medical center, who are mostly hospital-based, have found the same with them. So uh, in some ways, I would encourage organizations to sign up for all the calls, even though the, the topic may not be directly applicable to your work. I think we found that most of the topics are widely applicable to both practicing clinicians and to quality um, um, uh, divisions of healthcare organizations. So we would encourage you to, uh, to think about that. For those of you who are connected to training programs, we've actually found Author in the Room to be a wonderful mechanism of helping uh, medical students and residents understand the process of clinical improvement and the work necessary to connect uh, new knowledge uh, with real changes in uh, medical practice uh, or healthcare organization design and performance improvement. Uh, just as a quick mention, the next call is on October 18th uh, in one month. That article is uh, will be published and was published in the September 13th, 2006 issue of JAMA by Dr. David uh, Spiro and colleagues. It is titled, Wait and See, Prescription for Treatment of Acute Otitis Media, a Randomized Control Trial. Today we are delighted to have Dr. Harriet McMillan and Dr. Nadine Wathan with us discussing their article, Approaches to Screening for Intimate Partner Violence in Healthcare Settings. Uh, welcome, Harriet, and welcome, Nadine. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you, Chuck. It's great to have both of you here. Uh, Nadine and, and Harriet are really both cutting-edge researchers in the area of, uh, of violence against both women and children. Dr. Harriet McMillan is a practicing psychiatrist. She is also a pediatrician, and most of her research is focused on the epidemiology of violence against children and women, including a focus on approaches to prevention. She is a professor in the departments of psychiatry and behavioral, health, behavioral neurosciences and pediatrics at McMaster University. Dr. McMillan holds the David R. Oford Chair of Child Studies and is a principal investigator in a Canadian Institutes of Health Research Team grant that investigates health impacts of violence across the lifespan, including violence against women, child maltreatment, uh, dating violence, and abuse of older persons. Uh, 
Dr. Nadine uh, Wathan is assistant professor in the Faculty of Information Studies at the University of Toronto. Her research also examines women's health-related decision-making, especially in the context of intimate partner violence. And it is uh, delightful to have both of them on the call. It is my job as moderator to help focus the discussion on the application of this research with an eye towards clinical improvement, improvement in the way we design and manage our systems for performance improvement. The call will run this way. For those of you who've been on the calls before, you're familiar with this. Uh, Dr. McMillan and Dr. Wathen will spend about 10 minutes summarizing their findings. We will then take just a few minutes excuse me, to draw out some of the implications for real-world practices and to set the stage for your questions and answers. At that time, we'll use the rest of the call for, uh, for your questions and comments. I want to stress how important your participation is on the call. The calls are most useful uh, when uh, you both have questions, but also contribute your experiences in the, in the particular area, uh, both in uh, trying to drive improvement in this area and um, uh, in other uh, questions that you might have. So please jot down questions uh, during, the, uh, during the summary period, and please don't hesitate to tell us what you're doing in this area and uh, how you've made improvements in the area. There are approximately uh, 50 people connected to the call today with several individuals per participating line. Some members of the media may be present on today's call on a background basis only. One other note, this call is being recorded and will be made available on both the IHI and JAMA websites as an audio file. Complete details can be found on those websites. So welcome all and let's get started. Dr. McMillan and Dr. Uh, Wathen. Well, thanks very much, Chuck, and we also would like to say hello to everyone who's on this call. I thought it would be helpful if I started off by giving a bit of background, and this is Harriet speaking. Our team was funded by the Ontario Women's Health Council in 2003 for a program of research related to violence against women. So the study we'll be talking about today needs to be thought about in the overall context of that research program. Our main project and our ultimate goal is actually a randomized controlled trial testing the effectiveness of screening plus usual care on women's quality of life and the recurrence of violence. That study is still ongoing, although we are nearing the end of the recruitment phase. Before we could do that study looking at effectiveness though, we had to determine two things. First of all, the best method for screening women in healthcare settings and which screening instrument to use. We have used the term methods trial to refer to the study that we'll be talking about today. So it was really a prelude to the ultimate effectiveness trial. So before we began the trial I'll be describing today, we looked at the evidence for the best method of screening and it was conflicting. Some studies favored face-to-face -face screening while others showed that self-completed methods resulted in higher disclosure rates. We were most concerned about disclosure and we assumed that any disclosure was the truth and so we're interested in the method that would give the highest detection rates. But we also really wanted to know about women's preferences. And thirdly, we wanted a method that would 
produce few missing data. So those really became our primary outcomes for conducting the methods trial. First of all, disclosure, or in other words, prevalence. Second, participant preference. And third, rates of missing data. The screening methods that we tested were face-to-face -face with the healthcare provider, either a nurse or a physician, computer-based, and written. We thought that the best method might differ depending on whether the setting was in primary, acute, or tertiary care. So we had two emergency departments, two family practices, and two women's health clinics participating. The sample size was calculated so that differences across settings could be analyzed. The calculation was based on the null hypothesis of no differences in prevalence across those methods. And we estimated a prevalence of about 10% in face-to-face, 15% in written, and 20% for the computer. So essentially, we needed 246 participants per group per setting. Then within settings, we randomized by the day of the week and by shift, if the setting had shifts, for example, in the emergency department, to ensure balance. So for example, we wanted to make sure that not all computer screening fell on Saturday night shifts. The two screening instruments that we used were the partner violence screen, or what I'll refer to as the PBS from now on, and it's a three-item screen that focuses on physical abuse and safety. And the other instrument that we evaluated was the eight-item woman abuse screening tool, what I'll refer to as the WASP. And it has questions about emotional, physical, and sexual abuse. In the face-to-face -face arm, only one of the two screens randomly assigned was used. And that's really because we thought it would just be too burdensome for the clinician and the participant to go through two screens. The 30-item composite abuse scale, or what I'll refer to as the CAS from now on, and I apologize for these acronyms, we just find it does shorten things considerably, it was the criterion standard. So the CAS and a set of demographic questions were always completed on paper, regardless of the method of screening that was being used. Let me tell you now about the sample. So the women were eligible for the study if they were between 18 and 64, were at the healthcare site for their own appointment. So in other words, if they were accompanying someone, they weren't eligible. They had to be able to separate from anyone accompanying them, and that was really for safety reasons. They could not be too ill to participate, and they had to be able to read and write English well enough to provide informed consent and respond to the questions. Women were advised that their responses to the questionnaires would not be communicated to their healthcare provider, although obviously this could not apply in the face-to-face -face screening arm because the nurse or physician would hear the woman's responses. For the analysis, we used multi-level logistic regression for each of the outcomes. The models included variables for method and setting 
Because there was evidence of clustering within time blocks for the prevalence and participant preference items, we included an additional variable indicating the shift. Now, the recruiting period lasted from May 2004 to January 2005, and interestingly, about 13,800 women were seen in the healthcare settings during that time. But over 80% of them were not eligible, primarily because they were either there accompanying someone or they were outside the age range. Only about 5% refused to participate. So we randomly assigned 2,461 women. And just to tell you about those women, they were well-educated. Just under half were working outside the home. Slightly more than half were married. And just less than half had one or two children living at home. The average age was 37, with a standard deviation of 12 years. Now I'll tell you about the results. The prevalence of intimate partner violence ranged from 4% to 18%, depending on the screening instrument, method, and particularly the setting. The prevalence of intimate partner violence was significantly lower in family practice and women's health clinics compared to the emergency department. There was also a statistically significant interaction between method and instrument. For the written method, prevalence was lower on the WASP than the PVS. In turn, the WASP had fewer missing data than the PVS, and the written method had fewer missing than face-to-face -face and computer-based. Women preferred the written and computer-based screening to face-to-face -to -face on all three preference items. And those items included how well women liked answering the particular questionnaire, the ease of answering, and feelings of privacy. When we compared the WASP and the PVS to the CAS, we were disappointed with the sensitivities and the fact that there was little difference between the two screens, despite the large differences in items. Sensitivity of the WASP was about 47% and the PVS about 48%. Specificity for the WASP was 96% and the PVS was 94%, so quite comparable. When we got the results regarding differences among methods, we were surprised that computer-based screening did not lead to greater rates of disclosure relative to face-to-face. -face. Some of the literature has suggested that this might be the case. The interaction between method and instrument where the written WASP had the lowest prevalence was puzzling, and all the more so because the PVS did not show the same pattern. We did not know what mechanism was at work here, so if any of you have any thoughts about this, we'd really appreciate your input. The finding that women preferred self-complete methods to face-to-face -face questioning has proven to be somewhat controversial. We've gotten some feedback from various clinical groups, and the literature on the subject is mixed. But again, this is the consistent finding that we had from our study. Now, just to finish up, I do need to highlight the study's limitations. The women in the computer-based arm reported a lower household income, although there was no difference in their education or work status. Second, the face-to-face -face arm was necessarily different because the healthcare provider would know the woman's responses. 
And as I mentioned earlier, the healthcare providers asked items from only one screen. Either of these factors might have influenced a woman's willingness to disclose. And finally, the CAS as a criterion standard is not free of error. This error may have attenuated the sensitivities and specificities of the WASP and the PVS. So in summary, the three key messages that we developed from this work, first of all, even though we've long assumed that clinicians should ask patients directly about intimate partner violence, in other words, in a face-to-face -face approach, this study shows that self-complete methods for soliciting such information in a screening context are preferred by women and may be more efficient. The prevalence rate for intimate partner violence differs by setting and population, and again, we found it varied significantly from approximately 4% to approximately 18%, and I should add that that is a 12-month prevalence. And finally, and this is key, while this study provides evidence on the best methods to solicit information on intimate partner violence in a screening context, it doesn't tell us if collecting this information actually improves outcomes for women exposed to such violence. That's the randomized controlled trial that I referred to at the beginning of this summary that's currently underway. So Chuck, hopefully that summarizes it for the listeners. Harriet, very good. Thank you very much. I think it was a great summary, and we're really anxious to get on to the question and answer period. So we, uh, a critical part of these calls is to put us in touch with authors, Dr. McMillan and Dr. Wathen, and to share with each other our experiences and knowledge about system design for a particular topic area. In this case, obviously Dr. McMillan gave you a wonderful uh, review of this particular study, but it also alludes to a much larger issue of how do we how should we screen for intimate partner, partner violence and what should we do about it. I've been really remarkably impressed in all of our author in the room calls uh, that uh, I, I believe every one of our authors has been uh, a practicing clinician uh, as well. And I've been impressed at how in touch they are with the system issues and the system design issues. Uh, the authors have not been ivory tower academics, very disconnected from the real work that, that uh, that's we do in the clinical setting. And I think the same is true with Dr. McMillan and Dr. Wathen. And so we do want to talk about those specific system issues and design issues that are involved in the work of improving, in this case, the care of women uh, who are subjected to intimate partner violence. That is the purpose for the rest of the call. So uh, now let us turn to, the, to your questions, uh, and uh, I will turn it over to Amber. Thank you. At this time, we will conduct a question and answer session. If you have a question, press zero, then the one key on your touch-tone phone. This will place you into a queue. One by one, the lines will be open, so you may each ask your question. So again, that's zero, one on your touch-tone phone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, press zero, then the two key, and there will be one moment for questions. Great. And Amber, as we uh, wait for folks to uh, figure out how to use their phone system there. Let me just start off with one question first to uh, uh, both Harriet and Nadine. Um, there's really, a, uh, I think, an important relationship between 
this type of violence and physical symptoms, and women frequently present with a wide variety of physical symptoms, the driver of which is um, violence in the home or in the, wor in the workplace, either physical violence, sexual violence, or something along those lines. As an example, I think the data connecting chronic headaches in women with violence is, is quite strong. Could you speak to that a little bit and give us some idea as to the epidemiology of this and that connection between physical symptoms and partner violence? Sure, Chuck, and I should also add, in addition to the types of violence that you mentioned, there's also evidence for exposure to violence in childhood and the physical symptoms that you talked about. Interestingly, Nadine has taken the lead on looking at the association between exposure to IPV and a range of risk indicators, including somatic symptoms, uh, with the sample of people in our study who attended the emergency department. And I think in relation to your question that your listeners would be interested in some of those findings. So I'll ask Nadine to summarize them. Thank you, Harriet. Uh, this is Nadine speaking. Uh, Terry mentioned we uh, asked the women who were presenting for the study in the two emergency departments to answer some specific questions about what we call risk indicators that might indicate the presence of intimate partner violence in the women's lives. Uh, we developed the tool based on a meta-analysis of risk indicators that we've been conducting and uh, obviously the existing literature in this area. And we're really quite concerned with identifying things that would be clinical indicators of potential violence. So things that a, a healthcare provider could pick up on and prompt them to ask the question if that was the case. Uh, so certainly mental health issues and this issue of somatic complaints were quite important, as were some other factors, including um, the partner's drug or alcohol problems, which is uh, something that is very uh, well documented in the literature, and some other demographic type characteristics. When we did the analysis, it was quite um, clear that these uh, somatic complaints were very strongly related to intimate partner violence in the past one year. In fact, about 43% of women who disclosed violence also reported somatic complaints on a standardized uh, instrument to measure somatic complaints. Similarly, about 42% uh, reported depressive symptoms. So these uh, findings were quite strong. Wonderful. I'm sure we'll get into more of that as we, uh, as we proceed. Certainly, from my perspective as a practicing internist, uh, while we, we probably, and, and your, your studies will will help to elucidate this, probably should be screening all women uh, for partner violence. I think certainly there are high-risk situations or there are clinical situations such as a woman who does have chronic headaches for which you would want to pay particular question, particular attention to this issue. And maybe we can tease out more of those clinical situations. And again, the issue is then what system do I use to appropriately address those patients to most effectively address them? And then how do we help them after we've identified them? Well, Amber, let's go on to the questions. Okay, thank you. Our first question comes from Elizabeth Medical Center. Please go ahead. Hello. Um, I can tell Elizabeth, am I actually on? Yes, you are. Okay. Um, I, I actually have um, two questions. The, the first question that I have is um, it, it appears that the people who were not screened face-to-face -face were told that their providers would not get this information. 
And I'm curious about the value of screening, particularly in a setting like the emergency department, where providers don't get the information. And I, I understand I might have just um, misunderstood this, but um, it, it seems to me that the difference between surveillance and screening for case detection is that this falls into screening for case detection. So is it possible that um, someone could respond to that? Sure. Uh, in this particular methods trial, because we were evaluating the actual method of screening that would be used in the eventual effectiveness trial, we really tried to focus on the information from the women themselves. And as you already mentioned, we said to those in the written format and the computer-based format that the information would not be passed on to the healthcare professionals. And again, that was done because we weren't looking at effectiveness. Now, a question that arises is how could we do that ethically? But right now, the literature indicates that if we identify a woman through screening, there is not a evidence-based program or intervention to which we can refer her. If there was, for example, as there is in depression, then ethically we would be obligated to do that. So uh, it certainly is a difference between the face-to-face -face arm and the other two arms, and we were very clear with women ahead of time about the information not being passed on. They were advised that uh, Certainly, they could speak to a clinician at any time about any problem that might occur. But I think going back to what you raise is what would be the value of that. In fact, the value of us doing it was to answer the question about best method. Certainly in a clinical situation where we're concerned about assisting the patient, then screening would need to be tied to some kind of referral or intervention. And that's exactly what we're doing in our effectiveness trial. That sounds great. If I could just make um, one last comment about um, my own experience, which is that um, there are two face-to-face -face circumstances in which we've gotten very high positives on screening, about 16%. And both of them involved the face-to-face -face screener who had no clinical relationship to the patient, in one case, law students um, who had held out essentially a very altruistic model asking people to give us information because we're trying to construct a program. And in the other case, um, lay researchers who were clearly identified as not being uh, staff people who could actually help with the problem that the patient brought presenting to the ED. And, and so one of the things that raises for me is whether, um, as a method, the issue of who does the face-to-face -face screening, whether it's the primary provider or whether it's a neutral person, um, becomes significant, particularly in settings like mine where we see a significant number of people who are um, barely literate or not literate in English. That's a very interesting question. It's period here. And certainly, I think it would have been really interesting to look at how might there have been a difference between 
a patient responding to questions from a nurse or physician where she knows that that is a clinician who potentially must act on that information compared to a, you gave the example of a uh, researcher or uh, some other person who doesn't have any direct clinical experience. So that's very interesting. Thank you. Wonderful question, and uh, I really appreciate your comment and sharing your experience, which is so valuable to us. Amber, let's go to the next one. And for the participants, as you uh, announce yourself, please state your name and the institution that you come from. That would be helpful for us. Okay, thank you. Our next question comes from Baptist Hospital. Please go ahead. Uh, we had a question about where we could get the uh, questionnaires, are they published and would we be able to uh, have access to those? Yes, actually the, uh, the full citations for the questionnaires, the screening instruments that were used in the study uh, are cited in the paper in JAMA, which was the August 1st, 2006 issue. They're also um, reprinted in that issue in, in the article, so you could find the questions there as well. Thank you, that's great. And again, it's the uh, this issue occurred in the article occurred in the August second, two thousand and six issue of JAMA. Oh, sorry, that's okay. Is Amber? the article titled uh, the same as this? Um, oh, okay, I see it now. Somebody has a copy of it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Our next question comes from Women's Health Center. Please go ahead. Hi, it's Joanne from uh, Regina, Saskatchewan. I just have a question about uh, practicality. If you're doing the computer-based or the paper-based, who assesses the responses and at what point would you have a discussion with the woman if she disclosed uh, abuse in her relationship? That's, a, again, just a terrific question. It's Harriet here. and. Uh, <clears throat> In fact, uh, although this is anecdotal, it might be useful for people to know about it. Um, around the practicality, uh, we actually found that in our study, uh, using the computer, which was a tablet that basically got handed to women, that it was sometimes a little awkward in the clinic setting. That's the feedback, again, anecdotal, that we got from our research assistants and from some of the staff members. There certainly is the practical issue of how do you get the information to the clinician who then can discuss it with the women. And in our effectiveness trial, We've chosen, based on these results, to go with a written screen because of the problems that I mentioned, albeit anecdotal, with the computer-based. And we have the luxury of having a research assistant who has responsibility for getting the completed written questionnaire to the healthcare provider. But that's certainly something that potentially becomes an issue in patient care, clinic flow, and the kind of situation that would require, I think, discussion with personnel in the clinic. How is that actually going to happen? In terms of the uh, use of the computer, we 
did have a discussion, our research group, that perhaps if things had been further ahead just in terms of the number of clinics that use computers actively, that maybe people wouldn't have noted that problem. Uh, we wouldn't have had to go with something like a tablet. But all of this to say, very important feasibility issues. We have worked it out for our effectiveness trial with a written format, but the research assistant is very active in getting that information to the healthcare provider, and here this is key, before the healthcare provider actually sees the patient, which seems obvious but needs to be thought about. Joanne, your question was really excellent. And here, one of the things that it really leads us to think about is if we're going to screen and if we identify women, what ought we to, to do after that? So what, what are the components of our system, understanding that other studies that you're currently running will help to elucidate the effectiveness of those interventions? Based on what we currently know, what ought we to be doing for those women? Well, Chuck, I think you've just asked the question that, uh, you know, we're all seeking answers for. And I can tell you what we're doing based on our review of the literature, again, acknowledging that there is no defined evidence-based intervention to which we can refer women who are identified through screening. So. In our effectiveness trial, what we're doing is actually when women are identified, that information is given to the healthcare provider, and all the healthcare providers go through screening, uh, sorry, uh, through training ahead of time on uh, use of the screening, and are provided inf information about existing interventions in the community. And we're actually looking at the effectiveness of screening plus what we refer to as usual care. And that may differ depending on settings. So, for example, in Ontario, the uh, most populated province in Canada, we have a system of what are called uh, sexual assault domestic violence care centers to which women can be referred. These exist in the major hospitals across the province. In the family practice setting, in situations where easy access to those centers is not possible, then the family physician may take on the role of really discussing with women their situation, various options. And we also make sure that all the people participating in the study, including healthcare providers, have information about referral to shelters, um, services where they can uh, <clears throat> deal with safety issues. Uh, but again, it's quite variable. Now, people might ask, why didn't we actually come up with a defined intervention? And that's because in Ontario, there has been a push to implement screening without actually knowing if it does more good than harm. There are existing services out there so we thought, well, let's evaluate screening plus referral to those existing services and then let's measure really carefully what women get so that we can also look at the extent to which that may influence their outcomes. So Chuck, that's what we're doing here. I'd be interested in what other participants on this call think about in terms of 
referral to various services. Um, clinically, one of the issues that comes up for us is making sure that people do not do harm. And uh, uh, Jean Fetter, who's a family physician in the UK, has uh, published a really nice uh, meta-analysis of qualitative work talking about what women say they want and what they don't want in terms of their encounters with healthcare providers. And uh, so some of the things they talk about are an empathic response, uh, being listened to, not being told what to do, uh, and there are a whole range of other things that are listed in that article. Can I add something, Chuck? Please. The dean here. Um, the other thing, one of the other projects that we had ongoing um, concurrent with this was a, a survey of the education provided to healthcare providers, both in training and those who are already practicing. And you know, given the information I shared earlier about the clinical indicators, it seems to us quite important that we have better education for healthcare providers, both in their undergraduate and postgraduate training, but also in their continuing education, so that they understand the issue and the things that they could be looking for in practice to help identify this. Um, in Ontario, at least, the education was woefully inadequate for healthcare providers as a general rule. Thank you. Interesting. No, that's what's a wonderful experience. And uh, Harriet, as you said, I, I think we would, it would be great if we could get some input from some of the participants on the call. It would be interesting to hear what processes others have in place. Uh, and so if you're out there on the call and you want to share that, please uh, feel free to join in. Amber? Thank you. Our next question comes from Healthcare Improvement. Please go ahead. They may not know who they were, you were referring to. Okay. Tom, Anybody out there? Uh, Thomas? with healthcare improvement. Just one moment. As we're waiting for for that, um, I would I want I, I would question this. There was really a very interesting uh, segment on National Public Radio, which you probably no, both Nadine and Harriet are Canadians, but I think you probably know it, the US NPR, which was on sexual, sexual abuse. And uh, the person who was being interviewed made the comment that if we could just stop sexual abuse for one generation, we would probably go a long way to ending the problem because there's such a strong connection between those who have been abused and then who will subsequently abuse others. And I suspect it's the same way with, with, with violence. The predominantly men who, who abuse were abused during childhood. And so one could ask, you know, while there are obviously things we need to do for women who have been abused, there really is a very strong public health component to this. Thoughts on that? Is my line still open? And Chuck, are you asking Nadine and me, or yes. asking you know, for I'm general? Asking, I'm asking you. I'm asking you both of you. And it sounds like Tom is on the line. Tom, hang on, and we'll get to your question in just a second. I think that there is a huge uh, public health uh, component to any of the types of violence, especially family violence that we've uh, talked about, and uh, certainly that's the case in intimate partner violence and also in child maltreatment. And although uh, it's not the type of uh, research that I do, I'm very interested in how 
uh, we as a society, whether we're in Canada or the U.S. or wherever, um, move forward on certain public health messages. For example, uh, that it's not okay to drink and drive, for example, or wearing seatbelts. And how do we take the kind of progress that we've made in those areas and translate that into the violence field? That's a question that I am very interested in. And I think that we also need to be developing approaches to measure that over time. Going back to the point you made, Chuck, that we do know that people who've experienced uh, violence in childhood, for example, are more at risk for violence in their adult relationships. We know that people who've been exposed to violence in one adult relationship are more likely to experience it again. I'm also really interested in the whole idea of resilience because there are lots of people who have been exposed to violence, for example, in childhood and do not go on to experience it in adulthood. And I think we could learn a lot from understanding uh, those situations for people. Right. Uh, more important work yet to be worked out. Helpful. All right, Amber? Okay, thank you. Thomas with Healthcare Improvement, your line is open. Tom. Welcome, Thomas. Hi. Uh, Tom Benzoni, I'm a physician in active practice in Sioux City, Iowa. I am an emergency physician, and you know, I couldn't have asked you guys for a better segue. I didn't even know you'd planned that. <laughs> uh, well, first, just an observation issue, the computer question. Um, I, I think that if poverty is a marker for low access to Internet or computers, then actually I would find your results to be exactly concordant with what I would expect. If you have a population who is poorer, then their lack of familiarity with computers should have about the same barrier effect as a language barrier. And, and that's about what you saw in your study. So actually, to me, that makes a lot of sense. But the, uh, the, the segue that you gave me was a wonderful one. I've been in emergency medicine for 20 years, and probably as a result of too much 2 o'clock in the morning coffee, we've often sat around and talked about the concept of the cycle of violence. And I'm not seeing, at least on, on the studies that I've seen, I've not seen this addressed as a true cycle. I've seen a downstroke address, but not the upstroke. And you can't have a downstroke without an upstroke. In the study that you did, which incidentally was excellent, and I, I certainly, uh, if I can say, enjoyed reading it, I certainly will use it in practice. But the part that I'm seeing missing is an inherent bias. And the answer you get is always determined by the question that you asked. Inherent in the question asked and in the study presented is that violence can only be male and female. And what we've observed through the years of a rather violent population is what we see is physical violence. We've also noticed that there's a large amount of mental or psychological violence. And let me just give you an example. And you, the reason why this is such a good segue is you asked, how do you start prevention? We'll sit around at night sometimes when things are slow and there'll be a situation comedy on. It is almost always acceptable to make fun of an incompetent male because lots of laughs in the audience. And yet some of the nurses will sit around and remark to me, you know, what, what if that was a female? Could you have said that? And I'll think, you know, no, no, you couldn't have. You would have people screaming about it. I think until a society we make as unacceptable violence in either direction, 
whether it be physical or psychological. Now, physical is easier. We're taking the easy track here and looking at physical violence. But once we make psychological violence unacceptable, whether it be male and female, female and male, male and male, female and female, adult and child, I don't think we'll make a break in this system or in this issue. Well, More comment, I guess, than question. Is there, is there any research that you know of going on about uh, violence on males? And not physical violence, because that's, that's easy stuff. That's the stuff that makes for very easy recovery. Well, first of all, Tom, and if it's okay if I call you Tom, it's Harriet here. Um, I really appreciate your comments, and uh, we agree with you that violence needs to be studied across the board. In our particular case, the funding came from the Ontario Women's Health Council, and they were interested in a program of research looking at violence against women by men and how to prevent that. But absolutely, we have to look at violence uh, against men, by men, by women. We have to look at uh, same-sex partner relationships. We just need to know more about it. And there is some research, uh, certainly Murray Strauss, who's a sociologist at the University of New Hampshire, has done work looking at violence against men within the context of intimate partner uh, relationships. And the focus has been mainly epidemiologic without much uh, effort on intervention. And I think that we need to make uh, intervening in preventing violence across the board. And I mean, you've given the example of media. How do we move toward just making it clear that violence isn't acceptable and within the context of a supposedly humorous situation like sitcoms, it's not okay. And I don't know of any research myself that's going on in that regard. Uh, Nadine is shaking her head beside me. She doesn't either. Other people on the call may know of some, but um, I really think it's essential. I mean. Uh, this is just a personal observation. I don't know of any evidence for it. Um, and coming from a place like McMaster, it has a very evidence-based medicine focus. Uh, uh, but um, <clears throat> sorry, we're in a place where a fire alarm is going off, which is <laughs> during this call. But um, anyway, you know, like I don't see, for example, jokes about drinking and driving in the media anymore, but I'd be curious to know what other people think. Uh, Eric, if you'd like to... If you'd Sorry, like to Nadine's just button. making sure that we don't actually have to evacuate the building. <laughs> I don't so. know if you have a mute button, but you might want to use it a little bit in between uh, responses. Perfect. Well, Tom, it was really a wonderful question, and I think it alludes to the issue, which is yet to be, uh, I think, elucidated in the, in the literature of the intense connection between psycho the, the multi, multiple psychosocial uh, issues that people are experiencing in their lives and the expression of those in terms of physical complaints. And we know that that's there, but we really are not very smart yet about teasing out what those connections are, uh, identifying them, and then addressing them in any particular effective way. And what I used, the example I used earlier is the connection between women with chronic headaches and in uh, women who are also being physically abused. That is an overt one, uh, uh, 
but there are probably, as you said, gradients of much more subtle effect that we are really un not in touch with at this point, but we need to become and get in touch with them. So really good points. I appreciate you bringing, bringing that up. Wonderful. Uh, Amber? Thank you. Our next question comes from Barbara with Elizabeth Medical Center. Please go ahead. Hi, uh, this is Barbara Herbert. I'm at Caritas, uh, St. Elizabeth in Boston. And uh, my question is actually um, a methodologic question, and it takes me to this, to the what I've learned from uh, the new wave of anthropologists, which is that, of course, as, even as you study something, you shift it. And so my concern about our um, screening and what impact it has um, when we have not significant um, resources to respond to the screening uh, comes out of my clinical experience where I've actually had um, on three occasions when I was screening somebody, somebody say to me the first time, um, I don't want to tell you this because I don't want it to go into the record, whatever I say. The second time, why should I tell you when people always ask me that and they never do anything for me but send me to the rape crisis to the, you know, our, our center that is outside the hospital. And the third person saying, I'm really worried about maintaining um, custody of my children and if my, and if someone else gets access to this record, I'm afraid that it will hurt me. All of which I, I think both speak to that, and what you spoke to earlier, the absence of evidence-based interventions, and the significant issues about confidentiality when we don't have an evidence-based intervention to offer, and there could um, be harm as we collect this while we find it out. So um, I'm sort of asking this question, not just about is there less harm in screening than in not screening, but I'm asking a question about in our process of learning, could we also, and the compromise of confidentiality that that inevitably produces for our patients, um, could we also be then producing new harm? Barbara, a really wonderful question, and I think it really speaks to the tremendous complexity of this area in understanding what the right thing to do is. And I don't know if uh, if uh, Harriet and Nadine are back with us yet. Actually, we're here, Chuck, and um, uh, so it's not a fire, um, so we're not uh, putting ourselves at risk here. And I also don't want to expose the participants to that noise, but if people can bear with me, I can um, hopefully uh, answer some questions that posed by the last uh, uh, caller. Uh, how is it? Okay. So, I mean, you've raised some really essential issues, and we've tried to think about that in our research. Uh, we actually developed a measure to get at potential harms of screening. We wanted to look at both benefits and harms, and we realized there was no measure out there. So an emergency physician who's working with our team developed a measure, and it was tested. And so we're administering that in the process of our ongoing randomized controlled trial looking at effectiveness. 
but I also understand your question about when you actually do research to get at an answer, are you putting people at risk? And I think we always need to be cognizant of that. We have a team of 25 co-investigators with representatives from, for example, child welfare on the team where we try and be very sensitive to those issues. Uh, and we really try and minimize the risk for participants. But we're also very clear in our consent about the potential risks, for example, of having to notify in Canada what we refer to as the Children's Aid Society, the equivalent of the Child Protection Services in the U.S. So, Chuck, I've gone through that very quickly just to avoid people having to listen to the fire uh, alarm, um, but I'm going to put it back on you so you can take it from here. I appreciate that. I know how miserable it is to listen to that, so, uh, so our empathy goes out to both Harriet and Nadine for having to sit in a room and uh, have that noise in the background. Uh, uh, Barbara, any more comments about that before we move on? I, I, I actually feel like it's... Um it's not just a question of are we doing harm in the questioning, but it's the question about continuing. I mean, the first time I was involved in looking at screening was almost 20 years ago, about what the impact of that long period of screening without an intervention um, may be. I mean, we, be we, we began with the presumption that the intervention of validating the woman's experience was itself positive and actually was um, a strong positive because of the, of the climate of, of secrecy which had surrounded um, violence against women. I mean, that's part of, to speak to Tom's issues, that's part of where this came from. I, I mean, I come out of the period of the wife Peter's wife revisited by Hillman where she was one of the first psychiatrists to say, women don't just ask for this, which, which is a history that hasn't existed that is really gender specific. There weren't articles on men just asking for violence from women. So, so there is a historical reason that, that women have been concerned about this, but we also have had a long period of scrutinizing, screening, without being able to provide answers. This may be like the period that we had for a long time of screening people for HIV before we had mm. HIV therapies. Right. But lots of people chose not to be tested then right. because they weren't willing to have that compromise of their confidentiality. Mm. And so that's really the, the question I'm asking is, given the historical period that we haven't been able to come up with an answer, you know, are we influencing who will answer us and when? Once again, I think a really wonderful comment. This, the author of the Rube series of calls, seeks to help us understand and improve our systems of managing various conditions uh, based on an article on JAMA. And in this particular case, I think a very strong article, we are challenged yet to understand the full system of care that we ought to be applying to the issue of, uh, of violence uh, as healthcare professionals. And I think what you're talking about really speaks to that. Hopefully the additional studies that will be coming forth from um, Dr. McMillan and Dr. Wathen's groups will help to help us to elucidate that. Uh, and it does need to be a, an area of active investigation. So as we're thinking about our systems, I think thinking about the real evidence and where we ought to go in terms of system design is really critical, and, and you speak to that well. I do believe that we are out of time. 
uh, for questions. I want to thank all of you, uh, in particular Dr. McMillan and Dr. Uh, Wathen for their participation in the call. really was wonderful. I learned a lot and I hope you did as well. Just as a reminder, Author in the Room is a monthly series that takes place on the third Wednesday of every month at two from 2 o'clock to 3 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. Our next discussion will be October 18, 2006 with the article Wait and See Prescription for the Treatment of Acute Otitis Media by Dr. David Spiro and colleagues published in the September 13, 2006 issue of JAMA. Author in the Room is an interactive conference uh, called Designed to Accelerate Changes that Can Improve Clinical Practice. For further details and for past calls, there are audio recordings of past calls. This can be found on both the IHI and JAMA websites. Dr. McMillan and Dr. Wathen, are you with us still? We are, and the good news is the fire alarm has stopped. Wonderful. <laughs> good for you, and Good for us. We so, apologize uh, to you that that happened. No, any, last, any closing comments for us? I'd just like to, uh, uh, on behalf of both of us, thank all the participants. I think the questions were amazing, and they've certainly given us a lot to think about. And thanks for putting up with the fire alarm. <laughs> thank you. And we'll see all of you next time on Author in the Room.